Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. And welcome to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We're glad that you're here. Your stool is ready, and we've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives yet again. And Jim, our good martini... It's not good that our president is so deeply unpopular and doing such a terrible job, but it is good that the American people once again are seeing more clearly than ever about just how bad of a president Joe Biden is. Uh, The latest poll to explain this is from Quinnipiac. It came out yesterday, and the approval number for Biden among adults is just eye-popping, 33%. I mean, only Bill de Blasio could look at that and say, hey, man, it's doing pretty good. Uh, or maybe very, very late George W. Bush. But 53% disapprove. And across the board, except for Democrats uh, and black Americans, uh, he's getting crushed. 95 to 2 among Republicans. You expect that. But 57% disapprove among independents. Only 25% approve. He's down 61 to 26 among men. He's down 46 to 40 among women. He's crushed by almost 40 points among those who don't have a four-year college degree. And he's now losing, probably within the margin of error, 48-46 for those who did get a college degree, which is normally lopsided, at least lately, uh, in favor of the Democrats. For Hispanic voters, once again getting crushed, 51% disapprove, 28% approve. Uh, Even among black voters, 57% approve, uh, 27% disapprove. Normally for a Democratic president, those numbers are much, much better. Uh, And so, Jim, even when you look at uh, whether it's the economy, handling of COVID, handling of foreign affairs, can't crack 40 percent approval on any of those. And he's well over 50 percent on disapproval in all three. So what's your big takeaway? Anything in particular that that popped out to you? Well, if you want to argue, okay, it's the Quinnipiac poll. This is a bit of an outlier. Okay, but only a bit of an outlier. President Biden has been polling very badly for a while now, and this suggests that, no, he has not yet hit bottom. And No, there is no sign that there is some sort of bounce back or recovery or or things, you know, destined to get better. Um, You know, a lot of folks in the mainstream media and certainly Democrats felt like Biden had one of his better speeches and more impassioned moments when he was talking about January 6th last week. This week, he's, you know, went to Atlanta and was beating the drums on, you know, uh, voting rights. And we've got to, you know, have the federal government effectively control all elections across the country. This Quinnipiac poll indicates people are not, they don't care (laughs) at the heart of it. They don't, these aren't the issues that are front and the forefront of their mind. They have not forgotten that this was a guy who ran around the country. I would say ran around the country because he didn't campaign very much. This is a guy who, you know, appeared by remote across the country and said, I'm going to shut down the virus. And he hasn't done that. And in fact, I, I'm not least bit surprised that the president's numbers that seem to have hit bottom found a way to get lower in a week or two week period where everybody's catching Omicron and everybody's, you know, staying home sick. And the case numbers are, you know, it looks like a straight line going straight up on the chart. Um, it, we did not see the numbers we saw yesterday. It's bad on inflation. It's bad on the supply chain. We'll talk about a bit later. Gas prices. I went back and I checked. Do you know how much gas prices have come down since we announced the opening of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, Greg? How much? 10 cents. Huh. So if you want to say it's a dime's worth of difference, yes, it's just one dime. However, going from $3.39, actually it's less, $3.39 and you know some fraction of a penny to $3.30. And this is now, what are we, like a month, six weeks after? It's, it's, you know, the, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve move did not make much of a difference, right? People aren't feeling any type of relief. 
food prices. People are paying more, Greg, when they can find the food on the shelves because, you know, obviously the Omicron uh, infections have caused, you know, uh, we already had a supply chain crisis. We already had a labor shortage. Now you put the Omicron absences on top of it. There are a lot of people who went to the supermarket in the last two weeks and said, hey, there's nothing on the store shelves. These are all big, serious, like you talk about kitchen table problems uh, or kitchen table issues, Greg. This is literally what's going to go on the kitchen table. <laughs> and the I.O., oh, he's worried and he's you know, call, running around calling people Jefferson Davis and Bull Connor and things like that. President Biden is just, just he comes across as ludicrously out of touch and not connected. And now his big issue of today was pushing social media companies to uh, do more to shut down disinformation. Joe Biden just comes across as a guy who isn't worried about what is worrying the average American. And that's going to hurt him. And there's no reason to think it's going to turn around between now and November unless he decides to completely change what he thinks is the priority of his administration. And Greg, so far, there is just no indication that Biden is willing to change course. And Jim, I think you put your finger on it uh, in your comments on the podcast and in your writing uh, over the last several days. And that's that Biden's never seen numbers like this or anything close to it. He's always been safely reelected. Uh, he was always at the side of uh, Barack Obama, whose numbers, you know, ebbed and, and flowed over time. But I don't think they ever got this low, certainly not this early in the administration. And so he's not used to having to respond to that. And his instinct, or at least the instinct of his speech writers and handlers, seems to uh, crank the the intensity level and the incendiary rhetoric up to 11, and it just smacks even more of desperation in a guy who's desperately trying to change the narrative. And so uh, it's, it's not working. I don't think this speech did him any good. But I'll tell you another way this makes it a good martini, especially in a year divisible by two, since members of Congress are on the ballot. You know, if you're in a fairly competitive district or you're running for U.S. Senate in a race that's uh, expected to be relatively competitive— how far are you going to stick out your neck for a president that the American people, uh, only a third of them, uh, believe he's doing a good job right now? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see if and where Joe Biden campaigns for Democrats this year. In 2006, when the Iraq war was going very badly, there was the Jack Abramoff scam. You know, just about as bad a, an envi political environment for Republicans as you could imagine. I remember George W. Bush was doing events in places like South Carolina. Right. Deep red. <laughs> Those were the only places where it was still safe. We could get a big crowd to show up and where he was going to help uh, Republican candidates. And I think you could end up a situation where it's going to be kind of similar to come summer and fall of 2022, that Joe Biden is only going to be campaigning in the deepest blue parts of the country because that's the only place he can do any good. Uh, and if you took him to someplace, swing districts in you know Ohio or Florida uh, or the upper Midwest or something like that, it wouldn't do any good. But in fact, he would you know, stir up the opposition more than he would stir up that. Um, the only other thing I'm just going to, you know, as, as a stray thought there is if you listen to Joe Biden describe his years as vice president, he describes his work with uh, Barack Obama as a partnership and, and kind of the, uh, the often unspoken, you know, word in there is it was an equal partnership. Well, look, Joe Biden has been president for almost a year now. And I think we can all say, Barack Obama did a lot more good for Joe Biden than Joe Biden ever did good for Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, Barack Obama was just, you know, just in terms of sheer political skill, you know, it, it's it's Babe Ruth against Joe Schlobotnik, to use a baseball metaphor. You know, I, I could have come up with a better Jets metaphor, but the just being, you know, Barack Obama was really talented politically. Joe Biden is not really talented politically. And I think it's really catching up to him.
No, you just gave me uh, ugly flashbacks to 2006. Not only was the Iraq war not going well, you had Hurricane Katrina. Yes, you had the uh, ethical scandals. And then the, uh, the, the thing that just put it over the top, of course, was the House Page scandal with uh, a Republican congressman needing to resign. And who did the GOP throw out there to be the moral uh, virtue carrier? Dennis Hastert. So, oh, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I remember thinking the worst case scenario of 20, 2006 was when the Republican congressman had been accused, I'd say fairly credibly accused, of attempting to strangle his mistress. Now, here's the thing. You can have a mistress or you can try to strangle someone, but both scandals at the same time are pretty darn bad, right? Wow. Boy, this was an ugly therapy session. <laughs> and on to our bad news. Yeah, this Good is, you know, we're, being we're having traumatic flashbacks. Maybe a very different midterm year. Yes, yeah, this midterm should go a lot better, hopefully. All right, let's talk about uh, more good news. And that's the great deal you can get on really quality products from MyPillow. As I've said many times, huge fan of the Giza Dream Sheets, huge fan of the towels, and a massive fan of of my slippers. And right now you can get a fantastic deal on the my slippers cuz right now you'll get 40% off the new my slippers when you go to mypillow.com and use our promo code martini. These aren't just any slippers. The my slippers spent 2 years in development to ensure the highest quality and comfort. They're designed to be worn all day if you like, indoors, outdoors, wherever you want. They're available in moccasin or slip-on style. They come in a variety of colors and sizes. And they're made with quality leather suede and the exclusive three-tier cushioning system. They've got the MyPillow patented fill, the Impact Gel, and the Memory Foam. And for a limited time, MyPillow offering 40% off the new My Slippers. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener's Square. Enter the promo code MARTINI or use that code when you call 800-874-0104. While you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and the MyPillow towel sets. You can save 40%, but you can only do it when you use our promo code MARTINI when you buy the new My Slippers. Call 800 874 or use the code MARTINI at MyPillow.com. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And we've talked about the supply chain crisis uh, pretty recently and Pete Buttigieg going out there and tongue-in-cheek talking about how high-speed rail could you know, solve the, the backlog at our ports because high-speed rail is the, the Democrats' catch-all for everything related to infrastructure and transportation. But uh, in terms of reality at the ports, things still not good. Wall Street Journal reporting on this today that dozens of vessels have waited weeks or months, months to unload cargo at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach as a crush of imports has overwhelmed logistical operations that deliver goods to U.S. markets. The backlog rose to 100 ships in late November and reached a record 106 vessels on New Year's Day. Uh, before the pandemic, it was unusual for more than one ship to wait for a berth. Get that one ship just waiting any length of time for a berth. Now it's 106 uh, backing up weeks or even months. The COVID-19 uh, Omicron variant is also uh, creating havoc. 800 dock workers or roughly one in 10 of the daily workforce at those ports unavailable for COVID-related reasons, either waiting for test results, testing positive or just not feeling well. So, uh, Jim, there's there's policy, uh, there's healthcare reality. And when you throw them all together, uh, things are just getting worse and worse in terms of our supply chain. Now, this is particularly because, you, you you know, chances are listeners, unless you're, you're specifically following this issue, you just didn't hear as much about the ports in Southern California for a couple of weeks. So you might have heard, oh, OK, I guess they fixed it. Now, 
Um, my colleague Dominic Pino is doing a really good job of keeping an eye on this. And he pointed out that the Marine Exchange of Southern California adjusted the counting method uh, late last year. So you kind of had this question of like, oh, wait, you know, so because of potential risks of bad weather, they sent a whole bunch of ships. We want you to wait further offshore. Well, technically, they weren't waiting offshore within the acceptable, I think it was a 40 mile range. So if you're not within 40 miles, you don't count. <laughs> so they, so they make the, we're, we're just going to scatter you out and you won't look as crowded. And the problem will be solved. No, no, it's still there. So I guess he had written earlier this week on Friday, as of January 7th, they'd reached 105 ships waiting for berths at Los Angeles and Long Beach. That's really bad. But now, so I was like, okay, well, maybe, maybe it was a short lived, you know, bumper crop or something like that. No, no, as the Wall Street Journal is showing, no, this was, this is, things are still worse. Things, things are still building up. Um, it's really kind of amazing that this there's an enormous amount of tension on this issue, and the Biden administration is don't worry we got this we're we're fixing it we're addressing it, and not much has happened. <laughs> you know we're 106 vessels on New Year's Day, uh, you know this this is not getting better, and obviously you know you can't completely help the fact that. Um, you know, workers are getting Omicron. It's super contagious. So you got dock workers and guys uploading their stuff. You know, one guy gets it. They're probably going to spread it to a bunch of other guys. And, you know, under the CDC guidelines, you're supposed to stay home for five days. Really, it's considered six days because the day you develop symptoms or test positive doesn't count in their mind. Um, but I don't know about you guys. Sure, it would be nice to have a lot of tests right about now, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that'd be handy. But no, we don't have that either. So, um, just kind of you know, a, a, the today's bad martini is kind of an extension of what we're discussing in the good one. This is here's a real problem. Here's a real genuine. This is a, you know the, the backlog is huge. You got empty shelves. People can't get their stuff. We talked about it earlier in the week. Uh, you know, hey, guys, supply chain crisis is the sort of thing people notice and they feel and that you know they really affects the quality of their lives. And of course, the Biden administration just doesn't seem all that interested in it. Certainly doesn't want to call attention. It's as if the entire philosophy is if we ignore the problem, it will go away. Yeah, it's it's utterly uh, disgraceful what's happening here. But the problems, of course, snowballs then because you got all these ships waiting off the coast for weeks or months at a time. And that means they can't be reloaded. So the people who are waiting for them on the other end are also waiting and it just gets worse and worse and worse. I mean, uh, reminds me, um, Jim, of the end of season five on 24, you know, when the Chinese abducted Jack after he took out President Logan, uh, you know, and they threw him on a ship and he was off before the end of the hour on, on his way to China. They'd have to hold him on the dock for for, for three months, I think he probably would have gotten away at this point, which might have been. Yeah, and if there's, you know, here's the thing you know, the crisis has gotten bad when it's interfering with Chinese kidnappings. On to our crazy martini now, Jim. And, you know, Joe Biden, as you mentioned, got helped a lot more by Barack Obama than uh, he helped Barack Obama. When it comes to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, uh, neither one of them's helping each other very much. And we've talked about this before, but the question keeps coming up. What exactly is Kamala Harris good at politically? Uh, she didn't run her own campaign well at all. As far as we can tell, she added nothing to the Biden ticket. She certainly didn't uh, seem to put him over the top or anything. I, I think it was the, the result of the election had nothing to do with Kamala Harris. And she's terrible at interviews, which is probably why she does them so infrequently. But they do throw her out there from time to time. And she did a sit down with Craig Melvin, the Today Show, NBC News. And he gave her a pretty basic question about some of the changing data with the pandemic and, you know, how flexible this administration is in responding to that new data and changing policy. Listen to this gobbledygook. At what point does the administration say, you know what, this strategy isn't working. We're going to change strategies. Six former 
administration officials last week wrote that open letter urging the administration to change course, to change strategy. Is it time? It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Every day it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us to slow this thing down. Now, Jim, all those words were in English. They meant nothing. Yet every time she's out there, usually with relatively friendly media, she's just completely baffled by the most obvious questions. Let's observe, like Craig Melvin is not the toughest interview you're ever going to get. I think it's a perfectly fair question. I think it's very, you know, it's the question almost anyone would ask, uh, considering, you know, these uh, former advisors have come out and said, hey, we need a totally different approach to this. Omegron has changed the game. And, we, you know, the, the, even this is not the first sort of time this sort of thing has happened. You keep hearing the comments that every time you ask Kamala Harris a question, she seems like she's been asked to give she's trying to give a book report on a book she didn't read. <laughs> yes. The other comment I think I heard, I think it was John Ekdahl on Twitter, who said, like, she always answers every question as if it's from the cops saying, where did you hide the body? <laughs> There's always that deer in the headlights, the nervousness, the meandering and all that kind of stuff. And the, you know, like there's two aspects that really jump out. The first is if you showed up the Hallmark Corporation and you came up with an inspirational card and you said, it is time for us to do what we have been doing. And that time is every day. They would say, go back and work on that. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. That, that was rejected Jack Handy speeches. That's that's just not, you know, that Jack Handy's deep thoughts from Sarah Out Live. It's not going to work. But the second thing is I, I saw this and I was reminded of that big Washington Post profile about a month or two ago where they, they talked to all kinds of former Kamala Harris staffers, some on the record, some not. And there was that complaint that, quote, one consistent problem is that Harris would refuse to wade into briefing materials prepared by staff members and then berate employees when she appeared unprepared. Now, I'm sure Kamala Harris would deny this and say, I never do that. I am sure her most ardent defenders would say, oh, no, no, she reads, she listens in the briefings, she she reads through the stuff, she absorbs all the information she can. But I would just ask you, dear listeners, does she look and sound like a woman who pays close attention in briefings? Does she sound like she's someone who goes through all of her briefing materials? And does she just come across as someone who tries really hard to be fully prepared for every interview she does? I don't think you can make that argument. I do, I, you know, the, either she's reading it all and it's not sticking, or or she gets kind of these brain freezes. We've all had those kind of moments. We, you know, those things. But this it happens with an unnerving regularity with her. And I think a big part of the vice president's job is communicating what the administration is doing. Um, my colleague John McCormick wrote a bit about this, and he, he observed like uh, he, Peggy Noonan had the observation where. Uh, when she went down to Central America and she said, well, we're studying the root causes of illegal immigration. And Peggy Noonan is like, there's no mystery there. People think they got a better life here, right? There's better economic. Like, no, it's not a mystery. It's not, you know, oh, we got to look under every rock and get out our magnifying glasses. We know that. The question is, what are you going to do about it, right? Well, how are you, what are you willing to do as head of the federal government or the number two person in the federal government to stop people from coming here illegally and saying, well, we need to study the root causes is a way of actually dodging the issue. The way it was, ah, you know, I'm going to pretend that there's really complicated stuff going on here when there really isn't. Everybody, almost everybody in Central America who isn't doing well would love to live better in America and they see America as a land of opportunity. In a lot of ways, that's a good thing. But we got to keep track of who's coming in and who's not. And we you know, want people to wait their turn. We want to be able to do background checks. And we want to have immigration on our terms based on our needs, 
not based on anybody who wants to come here can just come here. And the fact that Kamala Harris just does this verbal tap dancing and offering up this word salad is why, you know, like we, we joked about Tom Friedman and his, you know, Joe Biden, Liz Cheney, you know, speculation. But isn't it kind of fascinating that a year into this, it's not crazy to speculate Joe Biden running for reelection with a different vice presidential nominee. Isn't it kind of weird? Like, like that's just that became a very normal idea in the last couple of months. And I think it's pretty revealing of that. I don't think it's going to happen, but I do think it's kind of an indication that even the people who you'd think would be cheering for Kamala Harris dread the prospect of Kamala Harris being the nominee in 2024. Yeah, that shows you how the past year has gone. The assumption was that Biden wouldn't be around on the 2024 ticket and Harris would be at the top of it. Now it's wondering who Biden's going to run with in 2024. But it also goes back to the point we were making the other day with Buttigieg and uh, so many others in this administration. Who do you trust uh, in a time of, of crisis. And this is the problem when you set the wrong parameters for choosing who you have in your administration. Biden, well before you know convention season, long before he had wrapped up the nomination, said it had to be a woman. And then after the uh, unrest following the, uh, the death of George Floyd, decided it was going to be uh, a black woman. There are far more women, far more black women who are far more competent at this job than Kamala Harris is. So I don't know how, uh, how she got this job exactly. But uh, when you pigeonhole your, uh, your, your positions to fill based on criteria other than who would be the best person at this job, and with vice president, it's a multifaceted thing. It's not just who would do a great job. It's who could help you win and so forth. But I don't think those considerations seem to have been playing very highly in Joe Biden's estimation on a lot of these appointments. Because whether it's Blinken or Becerra, who's not even a healthcare guy, or, or Buttigieg, whoever it is, Harris, uh, you know, over and over and over again, his approach to picking people for these key positions, uh, you can see why his methodology was not the right one. You know, Greg, remember for about 10 minutes, there was this Amy Klobuchar boomlet in the Democratic presidential primary process? Yeah. It was very short-lived, but there was this sense of like, oh, you know, every once in a while, like, you know, out of all the, the you know, half the, the Senate Democratic caucus was running. And if you ask Republicans who's the easiest to work with, Klobuchar usually came up pretty high. I mean, she, she was a down-the-line Democrat. There's no, um, yeah, there's no, no getting around that. But like, she was not crazy hard left progressive. And kind of had this, you know, homespun, Midwestern, amiable, you know, attitude towards her. She didn't run around like she, you know, was full with this, you know, all-consuming animosity towards anybody to the right of her and stuff. And that that, that is funny. That's lower bar. But you kind of kind of ask yourself, like, would she be doing that much worse than this crew? Would would all would Cory Booker be doing that much worse than these guys? Could it be worse, Greg? Sure, I suppose you could have President Michael Avenatti. But by it, there aren't a ton of really bad options. <laughs> really, you know, like options like, oh, that would be so much worse than what we've got right now. And this was supposed to be the grown-ups in the room and the stable ones and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it is really interesting that there's been this big hullabaloo about how, you know, there's been a shakeup in the Kamala Harris team and, you know, she needs to do more outreach and all stuff. She does an interview. Here we are, started 2020, you know, completely falls flat, flat on her face one more time. Yeah, it's amazing. Klobuchar, you'd still get the staff mistreatment, but you'd at least have someone who's able to answer questions. On that note, Jim, not exactly the most hopeful uh, uh, outlook for the next couple of years with this administration, but uh, reality's hard sometimes. See you tomorrow. Remember, world, things are getting better. (laughs) See you tomorrow, Greg.
Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the podcast and uh, tell your friends about us as well. We're also very, very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and please join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hey guys, it's Mock and Daisy from Chicks on the Right. We're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. From discussing topics like cancel culture, what's happening to our new generations, crises in our nation, and even some high-profile interviews, each week we touch on subjects that matter to us and matter to you. And we're not afraid to tell you how it is, so tune in every week to hear us talk about the things or even just get a good laugh. To find out more, go to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave a comment or review and subscribe.